Quick to chop her head off, then wipe the blood off. A long-range sniper shot, she busts, never let her dud off. You got a minute to pray and a second to die. You can see the image of the devil reflected inside her eyes. It's the Review A New Podcast. I'm your co-host, DJ. I'm your co-host, Evan. And this is the podcast where we typically take a look back through our favorite movie makers' films and look at them through a modern lens. And today we have Kill Bill Volume 1 that we're going to be looking at. Uh, But before we do get into it, uh, if you're a fan of the podcast and you enjoy what we do, please consider giving us that five-star rating on wherever you're listening to this podcast, as well as consider uh, joining my Patreon, patreon.com slash rapcritic. Uh, $2 patrons get to join the discord and chat with me and fellow fans as well as get access to episodes early and uh five dollar patrons get to do the bi-monthly q a sessions that i plan on doing exclusively for them plus uh contributing to help me get to my 1500 goal uh is gonna help me plan on doing more active stuff with patrons like movie nights and game nights that i'm trying to like hook myself more into you know jackpot games and stuff like that uh so like i said uh if you like our stuff hit up that patreon link uh you know slide some cash your boys way and get a whole bunch of cool stuff in return but let's get into this movie let's kill bill it. Volume one, bang! Let's fucking go! Oh man, how? What's your relationship with this movie, yo? <laughs> I wanted to see if I could do that. So yeah, yeah. So I have, I had seen it a couple times before, and I don't have. It's it's not one of my favorite Tarantino mm. films. I don't hate it, but it's not it's not my favorite. I think I saw it in high school. I think I saw it in bits and pieces, and I'd seen it in bits and pieces a few times over the years. Um, and, and I think I had seen the entire thing at one point also, but I just don't have a whole lot of strong memories around it. And I think a lot of the reason I don't have a super strong personal association is just that uh, there's a lot of there are a lot of background. There's a lot of background. There are a lot of references and things that because I don't. You know, I haven't seen a lot of samurai movies and I haven't seen a lot of kung fu movies. There were things that just went over my head. Now, I was really lucky that when I watched this again for the podcast, uh, my wife was watching it with me and was sort of like telling me all the <laughs> like, oh, you know, this is actually a reference from this. And this is you know, uh, a thing right, in samurai yeah. movies. And being, stuff. Your, uh, being your wiki annotation. <laughs> yeah. So so thank you. Thank you to her for uh Thank you to her for for making me uh, slightly less <laughs> bewildered. Um, but you know, I mean, it's definitely a really enjoyable movie. Um, yeah, it's just I, I'm like, yeah, it's it's good. I enjoy it. I I don't. I honestly don't have super strong feelings about it. Mm. But um, but nothing nothing negative really. Other, mm. I have see, like a couple for, quibbles, but we'll get to those. See, for me, this is this is the essential quentin tarantino movie because this is the movie that i saw with my friends in high school like on that sort of like oh yeah we're all gonna watch an action movie tonight we all know what it's gonna be kill bill volumes one and two i think that might be one of those things where me being like generational yeah yeah. like me being like five or six years older than you really makes a difference because yeah because i think the quentin tarantino movies yeah for like the original yeah, Pulp exactly. Fiction and Reservoir exactly. Dogs. Yeah, like Kill Bill. Like, I, what year did it come out? I can't remember. This is two thousand three. It came two thousand three. So it was like I was in high school when it came out, but it wasn't. You know, but it was. It came out when I was in high school. So the ones that were already sort of percolated thoroughly into the culture were the older ones. Yeah, yeah. And, and, but I was also just realizing in general, like you know, when you like realize the the time that you like come of age when you're like recognizing things and engaging with the world as like I am a citizen of now you know Mm -hmm. like and I was realizing like that was around when I was 10 or 11 and I'm actually about to turn 30 next month but yeah just having that moment of like oh yeah that was when I really started like recognizing like 
you know, things in terms of like, I really enjoy this and I really don't enjoy that. Because I, I do believe, like, you know, the Matrix movie came out in 99. Fucking love that movie. And then the uh, the second and third Matrix movies came out in 2003. Yep, it was around yeah. that time. Yeah. So, like, there were two, like, huge franchises that, like, split their movies in two. And, like, one of them was clearly, like, incredible and, like, you know, doing something new and breathtaking. And the other one was just like, oh, you were the new thing in town, but now you're just retreading, you know, the same ground. You know what I mean? Um, I could see that, like, th those two things sort of coming in fast succession. And then The Matrix got... I mean, The Matrix is a really amazing movie, but it got, yeah. it just got slammed with references and parodies and everybody like, I mean, Shrek, when did Shrek come out? Like That, I, that was 2001, I think. Right. And it, so like it Shrek, came, Shrek came out like two, three years later and did the bullet time parody and, and yeah. everything. And it was just, I feel like everybody got kind of sick of The Matrix through no fault of its own, but just because... Everybody, it, it was like every hack easy reference. Like you remember a few years ago when it was like every fucking lazy, like not even a comedian, like no actual comedian would do this, but it was like everybody who was sort of trying to be funny but didn't really know how would like say something shitty about the Kardashians, and that was like oh the sure yeah, and I feel like, reality stars suck yeah right, and I feel like making a Matrix reference was that in the early two thousands, and so yeah, so unfortunately like for the Matrix, you know everybody was just like a victim oh my of its God. own success <laughs> right, it really was it got it, it yeah so it, it got the hug of death you know yeah, from, yeah. from the popular culture, but Kill Bill I think I think Kill Bill benefited fitted a little in that it wasn't quite such a huge smash and the Wachowski sisters I feel like had not done anything that was a huge 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 hit before the Matrix no I don't think so and I, have they done anything about, that's like, a huge Will hit Smith after and, like well, be, I mean not really not to that degree but like because you hear about um you know, Will Smith, and I think there was another actor or two, like, turning down the Matrix. So, like, they weren't people that you'd be like, oh, my God, the Wachowskis, I have to, you know, at that point. So, mm. you know, and I think with Tarantino, like, he was not defined by Kill Bill. It was like, this is the new Kill, Kill this is the new Tarantino movie. But he was already established, so... Yeah. But but he was also established as an ultra violent like movie maker, right? right? Like that was what was really levied against him. And with this movie, it's like, oh, it's literally a, a, a like not a setup, but an homage to like samurai revenge flicks. So like, oh, of course it's gonna be all about you know uh, shedding and spreading blood everywhere, you know? Yeah, um, and and it was um, yeah. I mean, I, I think I think just in terms of why it didn't you know, it didn't kind of get that cultural hug of death treatment is just that it was really stylized and interesting and innovative in a lot of ways. But because people had already been expecting stuff that was stylized and unusual and very violent and had all this stuff from Tarantino, it wasn't this like, you know, dark horse out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. So in the first movie, we start off with Vivica Fox, and um, and a thing that I think even in the at the time I remember surprising me because it's like she's not in the movie long, but it's one of those things where you're just like, hey, Vivica Fox isn't in a lot of shit, and she is really good. And what the fuck so is she in good. more shit? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's so good. And this is also the, so similar to Pulp Fiction. He plays around with time here because mm -hmm. um. 
the you know there's there's flashbacks there's a, a series of flashbacks that go back the furthest in time to all the way to her getting uh shot right. and nearly killed and then to her her time at the hospital but in terms of the sort of her revenge quest the movie starts with Vivica Fox where that takes place after her going to Japan um, and then, yeah. and and I and I think it works for the same reason. You know, we talked about the the way that the time is structured in Pulp Fiction is to follow not the chronological time but the emotional arc, um, mm. and and just like uh, in you know in Reservoir Dogs, we don't find out who Tim Ross' character is until halfway through, and we've gotten invested right. in a particular way. And I feel like that worked because you know you've got this kind of goofy suburban mom fight. Um, yeah. and it's great, but then, but then it like, you're, you're like, okay, that draws you in. Like, here's the fun, goofy suburban mom fight. And it's a lot of great action and all this. And then you're starting to kind of like sink down into the, the more like serious and the really, the, the, the part that's drawing much more heavily on like more heavily and more directly on the samurai stuff where she literally gets a samurai sword. And I think that if the movie had started with her going to Japan and getting the samurai sword and all that, I, I think that we as the audience would look at that and go, okay, I know what this is. She's it's a samurai thing. Okay, got it, got it, right, got this it. Is and kind of a and kind yeah. of mentally tune out because we'd be going, I know what this is, and mentally tune out. But instead, we start with a suburban mom being also a deadly assassin and fighting her in the house and like got you know and trying to like hide the the weaponry from the child who's yeah, just gotten yeah. home from school which by the way i just have to say real quick filmmakers don't know what kids are at certain ages because i think the, right, they I say like, that wait, four. the daughter's four i'm like the daughter's four she can write perfectly which i guess some four-year-olds can but like that kid is not four. That kid is at least six or seven. Like she's yeah. coming, she's coming home by herself on a school bus. She can write. Like that kid is not four years old. Um, yeah. You know, having that really unusual sequence that is that isn't like. I mean, there's clear references like when she's like you know got the knife and she's wiping the blood off and all that. Like there's very clear visual references to samurai films, but you're not looking at that and going, I've seen this before. I know what this is and mentally tuning out in a way that I think we would have if we had started with the swordsmith. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love it. So like, yeah, they, they hide the, they hide the knives from the daughter and they go like, Oh uh, no, it's just that dog was, you know, making a mess. And so we had to clean it up and this is just my friend. And they, blank out her name which just bleeps always makes me laugh so oh yeah i forgot about that yeah that was great (laughs) yeah yeah um but she says you know it's like okay now that we're calm and you know i know your kids here like you know what i I, you know i've got some you know decorum i'm not gonna murder you in front of your kid and but i do think it's interesting she goes like oh well how old is this kid about for hmm that's about how old my my kid uh uh a kid I would have had would have been uh, okay, you know. So it's like that sort of thing. We're just like, oh, so you just fucked up my life, and then you just got to move the fuck on, huh? you know? Like, <laughs> there's that you know uh, underlying sort of feeling, you know what I mean? And uh, you know, Vivica Fox, you know, th- they're just chatting because she's like, all right, you know, how about I make you some coffee? You know, make you some breakfast? You know, like let's just like relax because we're gonna kill each other at a different time. Like they they mm-hmm. organize for like to do it at a different time. So they're talking about it, and she says like, all I could say is like, you know, I I'm a different person now, and all that sort of stuff and she says like look 
uh, and she goes like, and, and you know, she puts her daughter's picture in the face. She's like, I, I ask you, you know, for the sake of my child, you know, like, let yeah, me the way on. they're speaking is very, very stylized and they, oh, own yeah. it. they own it. It's so great. Cause I think what's the worst is when you've got stylized, um, dialogue and the actors try to make it sound natural and that backfires, like they kind of mumble it or something. And, and, um, and Vivica Fox and, uh, Uma Thurman do not do that. They instead just put like a lot of intention in it. Uh, yeah, and it yeah. works really well. And she goes like, and Uma Thurman just like bats it away. She's like, just because I have no wish to murder you in front of your daughter does not mean I'm not getting my revenge. <laughs> yeah. And she was like, uh, you know, it's like she, and the idea being that she wants revenge for like her kid who had died. And then she goes like, uh, she says like, oh, uh, you know, so, all right, so where are we going to meet? Like at such and such place in the, you know, uh, public park at night when no one's gonna be there da 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 and she's like uh like should we bring butcher's knives and like you know um the vivica fox is like digging into the cereal to like get some cereal out and she goes like very funny bitch and then you notice she like turns her the cereal box around as if there's a gun in it and goes like very funny and she like happens to miss because you know if you got a gun in the cereal box you probably don't have the best name so like it's like right at her like like the bullet hits like right next to her head and then she like drops her like uber thurman drops her coffee cup and just like kicks it and they slow-mo it where it's like it hits her in like you know in a way that like stuns her so that like she can jump up and get her knife and like plunge it right into vivica's uh chest and such a fucking epic quick moment you know this is like that's really how like most violence really happens right like it's really that quick you know what i mean but and also uh, just a funny thing of the cereal being called kaboom cereal <laughs> But yeah, like at that moment, of course, you know, the kid comes downstairs and sees what's happening. She goes like, hey, you know, I didn't want to have to do this in front of you, but uh, take my word for it. You know, your mom had it coming. Yeah. <laughs> if you grow up and you're still angry, get at me, dog. That, that kid, <laughs> like, I, you know, it's it's a moment because like you could just see the PTSD forming in that child. Yeah, right? like, like, just, like, <laughs> I, thought, I straight up on the strength of the scene alone, I was like, oh, there's definitely going to be a sequel to this. It's going to be about this kid taking revenge. I mean, yeah. I mean, I definitely feel like he was, I mean, it's 20 years later. That's an adult now. Like she's a young I adult. Heard so something like, about them possibly making a sequel. Yeah. Like, like no. I mean, even if they don't have like the actress who was the little girl, like, the, you know, like they could just get another actress. Cause oh, kids, sure. that's, they do that all the time. But yeah, like they, that <laughs> character would very much, would, would very much be in it, uh, like a young adult now. And, uh, no, but now the funny thing is, is like it's really Vivica Fox who fucked up here, right? Because it's like she, like Uma was willing to be like, I, okay, I, I, the bride actually. That's kind of like how, yeah. how she's treated in the movie. Yeah, yeah. it's like she's like, I'm willing to not do this. We can take it someplace else. But Vivica thought she was fucking slick and would like, you know, she fucked up the code. You know, she thought she could pull a fast one. You know what I mean? Um, but oh well, she happened to miss, and now she's now she's a worm food. <laughs> you know. And that's what's going on to the next moment. So, yeah, like, you know, as iconic as this opening scene is, you know, it ends with her as she walks out. And again, it's these little moments that just make you laugh a bit because you're recognizing like, oh, yeah, this is how these films are, right? Like after this epicness has taken place, she walks out and then all of a sudden this Japanese narrator just starts talking about like revenge and how it's, you know, you know like it, it is an all consuming fire. And it's just kind of like the thing where it's just like, 
where did this guy come from? Who's this? But like, it hits you in that way because it's like, you know what this is harkening back to. You know, you know the type of trope of the like, you know, the narrator, you know, stoically telling you the hero's journey. You know what I'm saying? And, yeah. and, but like having that seriousness being undercut with the fact that she's walking to a bright yellow car that says pussy wagon on the back. And so you're just like, what the fuck is going on right now? Like, I thought this movie was being serious, but then it just threw pussy wagon in huge bubble letters at me. But yeah. Then, yeah, the, yeah, the, that's what the, I think when I talk about the aesthetics of Kill Bill, I think of the bright yellow jumpsuit, which was apparently a reference. By oh, yeah. Me. Reference that's to a, uh, uh, Bruce Lee's movie. And this is that, why yeah. I'm glad that she was sitting next to me telling me these things, because I wouldn't have caught that. Um, <laughs> but, and also the pussy wagon and bubble letters. That's those yeah. are, that's what I think of when I think of Kill Bill aesthetics. Well, but that was my point that you're like, you're seeing that it's like, that just seems like, like, as you watch this for the first time, you're like, what a ridiculous thing for Quentin Tarantino to make, like, you know, like put in his movie, this character, like having the, you know, pussy wagon on her car. It's like, what is she supposed to be like, you know, this like uber lesbian, like what's going on here, you know? But then as you watch the movie, like it flashes back. There's a plot. Oh, also, I feel like. So there's like an interesting sort of there are layers of reference here because obviously there's a lot of reference to samurai. And I said something about Kung Fu because now I haven't seen volume two in years, but I think somebody said something about volume two is more drawing from Kung Fu movies, whereas volume yeah. one is more. But I think um, I remember that, yeah. So volume one, you know, it's very heavily based on a samurai movie, and then samurai. there were westerns that were heavily drawing from samurai right like oh the sure seven- oh, oh I th- and i thought you were gonna say like uh female exploitation movies of the 70s right like i spit on your grave and stuff oh like yeah that, yeah for know? sure well that's definitely coming in but what i thought was interesting sort of layering is that the flashbacks to the wedding are very much straight out of a western you oh, know for sure absolutely yeah, yeah. right out of a western down you know, like from the sound the close up on and, people's eyes and yeah, yeah and the, <laughs> like the soundtrack and all that but specifically the type of western that was a reference to samurai movies so it's a reference to samurai movies and also a reference to movies that were referencing samurai movies it's a reference that's what's it's a reference it's a reference reference that's not a word anymore reference um, but yeah so I thought that was kind of neat uh that was kind of nifty there yeah yeah um but like i said like but how it pays off right it's not just oh that's a silly joke that was right there like it pays off and how you know we cut back to uh the hospital and how that being like how we find out her mode of escape and transformation uh, in transportation now i will say as much as i do love the music in this scene it does seem like a sort of thing where i'm like wait so who ordered this hit if it ends up being that kill bill calls right before she you know injects the uh the thing that's gonna kill her and goes like oh no don't kill her because that would not be an honorable death for us to just kill her in her sleep like we're just a bunch of rats and it's just like well, then who was the one who was she just doing this of her own accord? And yeah, Gilbert I'm, just not, sure. To stop I'm her? not I'm not sure if she just wanted to on her own or if he if Bill had originally ordered it and then changed his mind. I don't know. Yeah, because that's how it comes up. Like it like so it feels like it's a scene that's there just to for it to be cool that it's there because it doesn't end up affecting anything. Like it's just like establishes that she's in the hospital. I think maybe like. Oh, um, it was right after she was going to go do that. And then she's telling her, like, don't do it. And then the four years skips by. And we see that, like, oh, uh, this corrupt uh, orderly has been, 
you know, paying, uh, getting paid to basically let like uh, creeps sleep with women who have been uh, like, you know, in comas and passed out basically. Mm-hmm. And so we meet this guy who, whose name is Book and he likes to party. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> um but yeah he's the dude who's selling uh the bride's unconscious body and you know we see he's been doing it for years because he has that moment where she like she's been in a coma but she's like had moments of semi-consciousness where she realizes mm-hmm. like well that's yeah, the really disturbing happen. thing is that if you talk to people who've come out of comas you know that they often like are at least somewhat aware of what's going on around them so it's not just like she was like unconscious for all that time she was conscious and couldn't do anything about it it's just nightmarish yeah in fact, yeah, like the way they open on her, uh, like doing the close up where someone says like, wow, she's quite the angel, isn't she? Like when when it first uh, they first get the crime scene and she spits on the sheriff just to be like, and, and you know, he responds, this some bitch is still alive, <laughs> you know, and it's one of those things like she has such the will to get her revenge that like nothing's going to fucking stop her. Right. Uh, and, and now like uh, it, now this is the thing that's kind of calling back to like those female exploitation movies i guess in the 70s where it's just like you know movies that are probably exploitation. i think i don't know yeah, if that's the actual too. term it's about like women getting revenge on all these jackass dudes and it's like but it's one of those things we're here it, it really does feel justified as far as a plot is concerned because it's like because you know okay you wouldn't want her coming too and then you know beating up someone who was like innocent and just doing their job you know what i mean so it like works better for it to be like a scummy asshole who is just like oh this guy's been like you know manipulating his job and so it's like okay now she has it coming to him when she needs you know a mode of escape you know what i'm saying like as as, as a plot thing you know with the, okay so what i wanted to say for the hospital scene is daryl hannah comes in wearing like a fetish halloween nurse costume with a red cross eye patch yeah it's one of those like you would obviously know that this woman is not working at this hospital and that's the thing you're first going like there's no possible way she's blending and looking like because she doesn't look like an actual nurse but then you see the other nurses in the hospital and they all kind of look like that so it's (laughs) yeah uh, that was my point that i was making though so like but you know this guy being a douchebag right like is kind of part of how it pays off because then you see like you know she takes the keys and you know she like takes his keys to be like all right now you know i've fucked you up and now i'm about to like get you in your car and she sees on it it has in big bubble letters you know the little tag on it pussy wagon and so she so it's like one of those dramatic things where she's looking at it like wow that's ridiculous and then we as movie watchers are having the moment of like oh <laughs> like that's why she has that car yeah <laughs> you yeah, know it's, it's, it's like, like the title drop moment almost yeah, it's like what is like of course a douchebag like that would have I that car like, like of course he wouldn't have that thing, car you know the pussy wagon thing almost feels like more of a title drop moment than when she says i'm gonna kill bill <laughs> yeah like i don't even remember when that happened it doesn't she, happen she when she's talking to the japanese where, dude yeah she says it at one point she says i'm gonna kill bill but the pussy wagon moment because it's just so ridiculous it almost is it's it's that title drop feeling but more so and, and like i said i like how it helps with the sort of it gives you humor as well as paying off how the narrative is unfolding like when you get that little mystery box of like why would this woman have this type of car? Oh, because she needed to get out of this situation. So it's mm-hmm. integral to the plot for her to ha- get this car, you know? Yeah. like <laughs> Yeah. Also, uh, so I want to point out, and this is not a complaint, to be clear. This is not a complaint because this movie is so stylized and there's so much in this movie that is, I mean, like part of the, like the characters go around murdering people with no actual concern about legal repercussions. We never see, yeah, like, no, we never no see a homicide <laughs> case. Like, yeah. 
Like, there's never, like, cops on the scene when Vivica Fox's character gets murdered. Well, like, there's know? cops on the scene at the beginning when she, when the bride gets killed, but it's not like they, like, they're, put out an APB for anyone's not, arrest. They're not cops. They're the sheriff. Oh, the yeah, sheriff. right, right. It's Because it's a Western. It's like, no, yeah, they, yeah. this, like, exists in a parallel universe. So this is not a complaint. I just thought it was funny that, um, and I know exactly why this happened, that... So the bride comes to after she's been in a coma for four years. And, you know, obviously when you're in a coma, you're, you're not moving. Your muscles are atrophied. So she can't move her legs at all. Oh, yeah. But somehow her upper body is strong enough to, like, yeah. army crawl and drag the rest of her across. And it's like. It's like one of those things, like, you kind of have to accept that in order for us to get moving. Right. Because it's like <laughs> if she really was just completely full body atrophied, she wouldn't be able to do anything. And then there, nothing would have happened. She, and it she wouldn't, wouldn't have the strength to, yeah, crack, like. Like, uh, right, like nothing would happen at all. The door, yeah. But, you know, but then we get her, you know, crawling herself into the car and the camera focusing on her toes uh, while she's like now, talking to her toes. So now, it's like, you know why that happened. <laughs> okay, now see, I totally like, like it with the scene. It cut, it makes sense it as totally far as like makes the plot sense. makes He sense. did a like, great job of justifying his right. Yeah, thing. yeah, he did a great job <laughs> of justifying his manager. Now later on, when it just cuts to the the performers just like dancing with no shoes on, now that is just like, come on. That Quinn. was. I think I literally just went, come on. When yeah, which the band is so good. What are those bands? Oh, they're, they're so good. Are the, they the called the five, Yeah Yeah The five, six, seven, eights. I the think, five, six, uh, seven, eights. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, I, the, I remember watching this movie and being like, all of these songs are bangers. Like, yeah. it was yeah, one well, of those. That's the thing. We actually have uh, in our car, we have like a, an iPod with the Kill Bill soundtrack as a mix on there. Oh, so, hell yeah. So, like, I've listened to this, even though I haven't seen the movie that many times, I've listened to the soundtrack over and over and over again. So, every time I heard the song, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like and it's one of those things that I think immediately after that that the, the, this movie came out that got used in like a whole bunch of like cell phone commercials and shit and it was like it was so immediate where it where you kind of got the feeling of like wait has this song always been around or, or was it just with that movie you know like you have that effect where like something gets becomes so ubiquitous so fast you're just like wait when did this actually start like it was just here like yeah. I actually get that moment with a uh, a couple of other like moments like the music the uh, when Oren Ishii walks around the the hall and you hear the do 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 I was like wait yeah, was that yeah. this movie first like was there another movie that used this music I or am I, I tripping know. yeah we're yeah. going to have to talk about the Oren Ishii Speaking of problematic oh, yeah. free web 2.0 uh, <laughs> yeah so, i mean uh, um Mm, yeah. Well, I just wanted to start off by saying that the intro that I used was uh, from uh, the RZA's song, which was a dedication to Oren Ishii's character from the Kill Bill uh, Volume 1 soundtrack, actually. Like, because uh, RZA from the Wu-Tang Clan helped uh, do the soundtrack for this movie. And so, you know, in addition to, like, you know, some of the song choices, like, he also, like, you know, did some of the music and, like, you know, just wrapped uh, one or two of the tracks but yeah i remember like listening to that have you ever heard that one the one with the rizza just like narrating like oh easy you have you heard that no it, it's such a like strange song because like i mean just the way rizza raps is you know weird in general but like you know because it's kind of like mumble mouth and stuff like that but you know he's 
master at like putting music together and like th that's kind of the 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 common blood um that i see as i watch this movie right where it gives me that feel of like oh wow i feel like this is the 3d movie version of those wu-tang clan albums i used to listen to where it'd be like music like really dope music and then you'd hear these samples from kung fu movies you know that would be like you know stitching all, all of the action of the verses together and so like you know watching this movie kind of feels like that sort of like Hey, here's someone else who also grew up on this and like, but made, you know, their version of it, like, you know, in, in movie form over here, where it's like, you can see like, you know, the, the loving homages to, to what they enjoy. You know what I'm saying? And now she's, yeah, half Japanese, half Chinese, uh, military brat, I think who, uh, comes to own this, be the head of this, uh, criminal syndicate, uh, early in the movie, as they explain when they do like the flashback to be like, you know, th this is this uh, character's origin story. And I actually do really like it, the way they do the thing where like they have the, like they're showing the four, you know, snakes that like were responsible for like, you know, killing her. And they slowly move the camera over to over in Ishii and like they're standing there. So they're not like paused. They're just kind of like standing in frame, like, you know, static. And then like as the ca as the camera gets like really close to her, she like looks at the camera and then it pa and then it does the like the, you know, fade back thing. Like, I just enjoyed that little bitty moment there of just like, you know, it's like, it seems like you're just having that static shock. And then it's like, and now it's introducing me. Yeah. I love that the animated sequence in this movie is actually good animation. It's actually yes. decent animation. It's because incredible like the way it looks like like anime but also like aeon flux you remember that yeah, like 90s yeah it movie, does you know? look like aeon flux but and i just appreciate it because so often when i see i mean i see so much bad animation and especially oh, like, you're so right especially americanized like oh look we're doing a tribute to japanese animation and they don't like really hit the 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 spirit and or weight of lazy, what the anime looks like. Or you know? just lazy, bad animation that is like, you really, you could have put like a little bit more effort into it. Like I get it. So I watched, um, Synecdoche, New York recently and it was front and, and somebody's going to come at me and be like, Oh, it was bad on purpose or whatever. But no, like there's, there are a couple animation sequences in there that are just unrealistically bad. Like they're supposed to be the sort of like schoolhouse rock, like kind of stiff, you know, flat looking, you know, whatever, but they're just that much crappier and they're so bad that it's distracting, which is weird because the movie, like there's so much effort and so much detail that goes into that movie. And then the animation sequences just feel like kind of an afterthought and I've seen that in other things, or like that. What happens when you don't have the dedicated budget and you don't take it seriously? You know, right? Some exactly. think it just feels like not taking. It's like oh, a in, cartoon, yeah. right? Like what was that? Um, what was that music video? I think it was one of the songs that you were reviewing for for your channel, uh, and there was a music video that had a, an animation sequence oh. in it. And it was uh, like, was it an old one or, or like relatively new? No, it was a newer one. It was like in a grocery store. It was like people in a grocery store. Uh, I mean, I'm immediately thinking of the take on me video. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's what it was. I was like, yeah, yeah, that's what it was. I think it was the I think I think that's what it was. Or it take was on me by uh, the black and white video. No, wait, no, 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 I'm getting mixed up. No, no, no. That was fine. no, I'm talking about. Um, No, I like that video. No, it, what was it? It was the I'm too sexy or the it was the I'm too oh, sexy cover. Right. Uh, and yeah, is it, am Drake I am I getting future. it mixed up or is there an animated? Yeah, no, that's a new song. Yeah, there was an animated sequence in there yeah yeah right the and the animated sequence was just like it looked like something from like 
you know, E-bombs world. Like Newgrounds. Yeah. Right, exactly. Like it was like a Newgrounds. It was like you guys yeah, couldn't oh, come have gotten on. You're some, paint someone more. You couldn't have this. done a little bit better, right? <laughs> so I appreciate that the animation in this movie is like it didn't feel like Tarantino going, and we'll have an animated sequence, I guess. And I don't know, slap something in there. It's like it's actually like yeah, if you, you saw really an see, like, actual textures. Right, and, if you saw like yeah. an actual cartoon that looked like that you wouldn't be like, what the fuck is this, right? Like, it, it's it's actually, it's realistically done in terms, like, it looks it looks like an actual animated show. Yeah, and like I said, the fluidity of the animation, since it's just, like, this one portion and how they're able to be dedicated to really filling in the lines, like, especially the part that always gets me when, so, you know, the the, the Yakuza or what have you have, have his, have her mom and dad and throw her on the bed and, like, you know, stab her, through with the with the sword and you see like the kid sitting there underneath the bed like hiding as a tear like drops from her eyes and you see like the blood start to pool and fall down like that's such like an epic moment when you hear the music the like the really epic music building up and she's like she's i think she says at one point she says whimper like i'm scared and but then she like literally you see the words come out and she like pushes them back into her mouth like because she knows she can't make a sound you know yeah. she knows that she can't be vulnerable now like yeah. she has to survive right like it's that sort of intuitive yeah. thing being told to her you know now i will say the her you know 11 year old and I and you can understand like I'm glad I will say I'm glad this was animated and I listened Yeah, oh right. Yeah, when it's like So a- I listened to a podcast that I really recommend and I feel like I may have recommended it on here before but there's a podcast called The Lolita Podcast. It's mm. really good. It's really good. I really recommend it. Might be triggering to people just to, you know, get that out there, but mm. it's really good and one of the I can't remember who this was, but one of the people who was working on the podcast, she basically said, because they were talking about adaptations of Lolita, and she said, basically, I think the only way you can do this movie correctly is animated. You ha- It has to be animated because what's happened with anim- uh. with adaptations of Lolita is that, you know, the movie is you about... not exploit uh, the kid in right, starring like, in the role. Yeah. The movie is about a you know, a, a 12 year old who looks very much like a child, like who's a, a prepubescent 12 year old being abused. And yet for some reason, so many of the adaptations have tried to like age her up, make her look sexier. Literally like the kid in the book is described as being like four foot 10 and skinny. And, uh, then, and then one of the casting notices said five foot five with a great figure. And yeah, it's like, Oh, let's not be weird about this. Let's have someone who looks a little older, but like, right, by but it's doing like but that, the whole point are, is that it's supposed to be weird. Yeah. <laughs> That's the whole point. Service, and, yeah. Sexualizing the kid by doing that. Yeah. Right. And, and you can't, yeah, you can't like, and then, but then you also have like, punches getting pulled in ways that then misrepresents the story. And it's just, it's a problem. And, and really like, you know, I, I completely agree with this conclusion that if you're going to do an adaptation of Lolita, it has to be animated. So for that same reason, very glad this was animated. However, um, you know, not to fully excuse the uh, implications of this 11-year-old seducing a pedophile in order to get revenge on him. Like that's, 
It's gross, and I feel like yeah, and it's played that way, like the way they go, like the way literally the line is is like after that tragedy, she goes, "Lucky for her, Bob uh, Boss Mitsumoto was a pedophile." Like the way they're specifically playing it up, we're just like, "Wow, that's a really dark way." Right. To, I mean, it like, fe- transition. It does bug me a little because it's like, and I get that it's like you know it's intense and dark and blah blah blah, but it's played the same way as if it was like you know, she's got freckles and it's like, lucky for her, he was into girls with freckles. It's like, no, that's not the same thing. That's not the same thing. And saying, hey, this child willfully subjected herself to molestation in order to murder somebody who killed her parents in front of her. Like, I don't know. It's, it's, you know, it's one of these things. And I think we've talked about this with some of Tarantino's other movies is like, you know, I'm not saying, well, it should have been this. You know, or or you shouldn't yeah. have you shouldn't have said that. It should have been this. It, and I don't think it's quite that easy an answer. Like to thread the line of like, well, here's how to properly be controversial yeah. while still not like. I, yeah, I had I a writing it. teacher who said um, I had a writing teacher who who said like her, her sort of golden rule of offering criticism was if somebody writes a story about alligators, you don't tell them, oh, this is stupid. Don't write about alligators. Write something about, you know, giraffes instead. You help them write the best story about alligators that they can because that's what they're trying to yeah. Right. So with Tarantino, it's always like it's He's trying always to th- going into these dark territories. Right. And I don't want to say like, you know, oh, you shouldn't you shouldn't tell a story about that because I, I don't think that's I think that's hardly ever a helpful thing to say. But, I, you know, wanting to point out that, you know, I just I just want to sort of acknowledge without having any kind of easier flip answer about it yeah, that that having this character where you know, it reminds me a little bit of, you know, in The Boys, there was a, a criticism specifically of using sexual assault on female characters as character building, which right. kind it's of... Right, showing the sick, sad world that she has to, like, you know, get through, you know, like... Right, and it's it's just, like, this is a real thing that happens to and affects people, and I, I, just, I just remember, like, the the character in the boys in the, I'm talking about the comic book here. It's a little, it's done a little differently in the movie, Uh but the character of, uh, of the, the girl, I'm star something or other. I'm forgetting her full superhero name now, but oh, the girl who has like, yeah, makes fireworks and stuff. Right. Like Starfire. I want to say it's Starfire. No, that's an actual character. No, No, but what's her name in the boys? Anyway, Starshine or something. Yeah. So anyway, or Starlight, I'm going to say Starlight, even if that's wrong. Okay. So I stop. Yeah. So Starlight gets raped in the comic and then she, and then the, you know, because if anybody's not familiar with the boys, the premise is that superheroes are real, but also, <laughs> well, they're real and they suck, but it's like superheroes are real, but also superheroes are the characters in comic books. And it's just that they're run by a big corporation who sort of licenses them out and writes their storylines and everything. Which, and, hey, that's just what happens in real life. <laughs> So, so the care, so the corporation is like, oh, you got raped. Okay, great. We're going to like write this, you know, new storyline for you where you get all dark and edgy and sexual. And she's talking to one of the other characters and she said, you know, it didn't make me dark and edgy and sexual. It made me want to scream until I died. I actually really enjoyed the way they handled that uh, in the, in the show. They handled it really well. I was talking about the comics, but they, they Uh handled it well in the show in a, in a slightly different way. But, um, but I, but I was thinking about that with uh, with Lucy Liu's character because you know Lucy Liu's character is this stone cold badass. She's just badass boss bitch. She's a murderer and a crime boss. You know, so you could yep. argue she didn't turn out great. But you know, 
But it also gives you her backstory in the sense of like, she's fighting through adversity. You know, she's dealing with being a a foreigner to, you know, Japan and China. You know what I mean? Right, right. But my point is that you've got this character who's presented as this, you know, very cool stone cold badass. And what she went through as a child is portrayed as part of what made her so badass. And I think Mm. there's a really... You know, and again, I'm not saying like Tarantino, you should have written us differently. I'm not saying that, but I just so feel like it's a little exploitative. Well, think? I feel like it's just, I mean, literally his genre is exploitation. Yeah, so yeah, I don't so. think it's, I don't think it's useful to criticize Tarantino for being exploitative when literally that's his genre that he works in. That's the sandbox. Yeah. Right. However, I just think it's worth calling out and noting that. You know, you have yet another female character where the trauma that she's been through, including sexual trauma, is shown as what makes her strong. And that's something Mm. that bleeds into real life where people who have been through trauma Mm. and who are also strong people are told, well, aren't you lucky that happened to you because that made you strong? And that's a horrible, horrible thing to say to somebody. And it's a horrible thing to think. And it's not true when somebody has been through trauma and it, also it, just, it can break them. That doesn't necessarily well, equate and, to them being stronger. Well, and like, somebody, yeah. right. It's like somebody who is strong and also has lived through trauma is not strong because of the trauma. They're strong because In of spite them. Of it, right. Like, well, and it, and it's just like, stop crediting horrible shit that happens to people. It's like anybody who says that like mental illness makes people more creative or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it's, it's just like, stop blaming the worst or stop crediting the worst shit in people's lives with everything good about them, you know, mm-hmm. because I think, I think it's so harmful and it's also something that, you know, you have so many people who are resistant to, taking care of themselves are resistant to getting help for any mental struggles they have for substance abuse issues they might have for trauma that they've been through are resistant because they've been told over and over again, but that's what makes you strong. That's what makes you creative. That's what makes you interesting. And if you get healthy and take care of yourself, you're going to be boring. And and that's the shit that leads us to like, Oh, you don't need to stop beating your kids or stuff like that. We were beaten and it made, gave us character. It's just like, you're not looking at like what, what you could have gone through that made you not the best person you could have been because of yeah and and, yeah. yeah and and you know all that's getting very far afield and again tarantino is literally right. working in the exploitation genre so <laughs> i'm not necessarily saying he should have done well, this know, differently this but I think, it's, right? I think it's something that it's important to talk about yeah. i think it's important to I, call that out and say like hey here's another plot line where a woman is a stone cold badass because of she got because she got molested and her parents were murdered in front of her that's that's not that that's not how anything works in real life. But there's a lot in this movie that doesn't know anything works. So, yeah. <laughs> so putting that um, in context there. And now I, I do think this is interesting. Um, I think of this movie in the same way of I think of like uh, as far as like how the plot plays out in the same way of a Full Metal Jacket. In that I remember people saying that like the movie Full Metal Jacket doesn't feel like it. Like most movies are in like you know most movies are in like three parts. It feels like that movie is just like here's the part where they're training and then they're just in war. And it's like, that's just kind of a movie. You know what I mean? And so like with this movie, it's like, here's the part where she's like, uh, going after the first girl 
and uh, here's some background on Orin issue, and now we're going to Japan to f- fulfill what needs to be done. It doesn't really work in that narrative plot of like, this is this thing, and now the rising action, and now this. It's literally like, here's this person to show you that we are in media's rest, going to kill this, uh, going to kill these four motherfuckers, and then, oh yeah, here's the background on the next person, and then literally the movie goes to like, it's just Uma Thurman traveling to Japan and then about to like get on her mission. But uh, the first one, now it is a little, uh, it actually uh, calls back to what you were bringing up earlier about the like, oh, she plays, she pretends that she's a dumb white foreigner who doesn't know what's going on when she's talking to this uh, Japanese guy. Because remember, she's like, oh, uh, I learned a couple of words in Japanese. And she's like, oh, really? You know, tell me. And, you know, he's just like, she's like, oh, I learned, uh, you know, arigato and I learned this. And she's like, and he's, you know, flattering her like oh that's so awesome and then she goes like yeah um so i actually came here to find uh guides uh, someone that you might know and he's like oh oh really uh you know someone you're looking for like business partner friend partner what's going on and he's like yeah hatori hanzo uh, the sword maker and he just like immediately i think he like he's like chopping up something and then he just like hears that and just immediately drops the plate that he's chopping on and he just has that moment just like hey i uh I don't do that anymore. I don't make swords that kill anymore. This is not what, you know, I do. Like, it's not my thing. But but he's, like, speaking to her, like, just in Japanese. And then she speaks back to him in, like, you know, completely fluent Japanese. Like, hey, yeah, I know that you don't do that anymore. But, like, uh, I've got a pretty big fucking rat problem that I have to deal with. And seeing that he was one of your students, I think that you have an obligation to help me out in this endeavor. Like, basically, like, plotting it like that. But, yeah, like you said, it is one of those things where it's just like, oh, I'm the stupid, like, white girl. And you, you wouldn't assume that I would know Japanese. And it's like, aha, but the white girl does know Japanese. So maybe you should show some respect and not judge white people, you know? Like, well, and it's just, like, <laughs> you know. It, like, they didn't need to do that. Like, I it could have just been like because like there's that question of just like what how does she know i mean i guess maybe she just does mob shit they don't really make it clear like what her job is beforehand but like yeah how does she know to go to this specific restaurant to this specific guy who has who makes these swords i think he's legendary and she's in the know but yeah i mean and i think what what is a little annoying about you know what's what's irritating about that like oh the dumb white guy actually speaks fluent blah 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 it's like i you're not dumb for not knowing a particular language that isn't your native language or the language of a country you live near like that doesn't make you dumb and if somebody assumes you don't know that language because you're from a country on the other side of the world they're not judging you in unfairly or being like you know because it's sort of like the attitude of well why wouldn't you assume I know this and it's like because why would because they typically and, yeah and, like, and so white it, people don't know Japanese it's, that's well, just and, it, like, and it just feels like wanting people to assume that you would know it just feels really like weird you know and arrogant it, it feels like trying it feels like trying to do the reverse of when you know Chinese or Japanese people come to America and you know someone like kind of treats them like they don't know English and they go like why would you treat me like that like you, you, you know speak to me for a second before you actually get to know and it feels like the the hurt ego white guy tried to do the well I get discriminated against too people don't well, assume that I would know Japanese and, and, and like, the okay, difference yeah it's just same. it's not the same because like for one thing like America is just literally America is way more racially diverse than Japan. So if you see an Asian looking person in America, there's no reason to assume before you've spoken to them that they're not American. Whereas if you see a white person in Japan, 
it's a fairly easy bet that they're not from Japan. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just that's literally just Japan is not as racially diverse as America. It's not a, it's not an unfair assumption that a white person doesn't speak Japanese yeah. and and you shouldn't get offended. That's dumb. So, yeah. but uh, that's just you know, a side general thing. Yeah. Of, but but that. But, I, I felt like that the whole scene where, you know, the, they're just pretending to be kind of like silly, clueless bartenders and they're actually the legendary sword maker and his helper. Yeah, yeah. It went on for so long and I was stressed out. It was like, I did, cause I, you know, it had, been a, now? <laughs> right, like, it had been a while and I was like, are they going to get a fight? Like I didn't, I, I will say, no, no, no. You're right earlier about that, that point about like, yeah, she, she would know like about this guy. And the point, the point of the scene is that she's playing dumb to be like, Oh, I'm just joking. But, uh, seriously, I actually know what's up. And then, uh, I, I love the music that they use for the sword scene. Uh, when she's like looking at all the swords, like especially because like when you just hear the singer, like it so puts you in the moment, like the the lighting that they use, and just the sort of like you hear the singer who like literally sounds like a that sort of tinny ringing like full singing noise that you hear when a sword's being unsheathed. That like yeah. they did actually like earlier, like you actually hear the sound of an unsheathing sword, like you hear the ringing that. Like you hear it earlier, and then it transitions to that scene where you hear her singing, and she's like. So it's like a very similar sort of like, ooh, they're like personifying it in music, you know, how it sounds like. So I thought that was really cool. And yeah, and then it kind of does that thing where like, okay, yeah, why would this legendary swords maker make this sword for this, you know, random white chick? And it's like, oh, right, because like, I know why you hate this guy, right? Like, I know what happened. And so like, because I owe you this debt because I trained him, I'm going to make the sword for you. But he basically goes like, this is going to be my best sword. So you better train up because this is going to take like a year. So yeah, then that time just goes by and um, it, it cuts it cuts by and you have the, like the ceremony where it unsheaths the sword. And again, this is one of those things where it feels like it feels like it's being like, you know, very respectful of it. Right. Like it's showing him like, you know, unsheathing it and showing like doing the, the ceremony of inspecting it. You know what I'm saying? And he goes like, this is without ego, my best sword. And I love this line every time I remember this in the movie. If you encounter God himself, God will be cut. <laughs> <laughs> it is so epic <laughs> and yeah like i said with uh the way this movie plays out we we start from yeah like i said i really is that simple like we don't have like a plot arc it's literally just like they kind of reveal what's happening as they're doing the flashback with Oren ishii but it's just kind of like here's what's happening and we're here now and so like the big second act is getting to the nightclub that Oren Ishii runs and just fucking fucking shit up in, when she gets there. And that's really, like, the second half of the movie. But it's done so well as, like, a, a, as a continuing action sequence that it really is a thing where it's, like, a thing of beauty to behold where you're just, like, I really... Like, in an era where we, we have lived through, like, the fucking Michael Bay blockbuster, you know, 3D sludge fest. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's so cool to just see, like, here's action. And, yeah, it does go on for a while. But, like, you're strung through it. You can see the narrative flow of the action that's happening in a way that makes you, like... That makes you on the edge of your seat seeing, like, how's she going to get over this guy? How's she going to fight that guy? You know what I mean? Like, you know, like in a lot of movies where, you know, you watch an action scene and, and you can basically see the three guys in the background who can't just slash at the person because they have to wait. You know, like, yeah. this this movie does such a good job of, like, keeping the cuts really close so that, like, all you're seeing is, like, whoa, how she, how she gets from this guy to that guy. How she gets from that guy to that guy. That is just, like, the fluidity of the action is so, like, 
worth it the whole time to keep you tense. Like, it was really fucking cool. Oh, but before we get into it, though, I just loved that. So, you know, as they're doing the uh, uh, the travel sequence where she's going over, basically the thing that divides the first part from the second part, you hear this music, which, which uh, I originally identified as being like, oh, is that the fucking Flight of the Bumblebee but played, like, on trumpet? Because it's like... <laughs> And it was like, you know, and I was like, wait, what the heck? And then I looked it up. I was like, oh, because I wanted to, I think I was like looking up some soundtrack choices to figure out like, oh yeah, which song should I like do for the intro? I was like, oh yeah, what are, which, uh, what are these songs that I choose? And then I just happened to see, and I was like, wait, uh, the theme from the Green Hornet plays when the bride is flying and arriving in Japan. And I was like, wait, there was only one song that played it. It was that song? <laughs> so the song that you heard that sounds like, literally just riffing on the um the motif of the uh the classical you know thing from the flight of the bumblebee is someone taking that and transposing it and putting it in the green hornet as that tv show's theme and then him quentin tarantino retroactively using that remix of that remix you know in his movie you know i just like think that's so cool that you can yeah. do that and also how he finds these samples like these samples in these movies as we've been watching through like these things were like because they're obscure, like movie, uh, because they're obscure, like song samples, it's that thing where you're like, wait, you like, you have that thing where you're like, is this from something old or is this someone making something new and then like making it sound old because I don't recognize this, but it has the feel of those old 60 things. And what's really cool about this movie, you know, Kill Bill, is that like there are genuine parts in this movie where he works with uh, RZA to make stuff that sounds like it's older and mixing it in with the stuff that's new. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. We hadn't really like talked about that, that that's RZA doing a lot of the soundtrack yeah and so it's that cool feeling of like in the same way that when you watch you know some movies and they kind of uh, like uh sorry to bother you right when we watch that yeah. movie and you're like it doesn't really let you know what year they're really in because you know these primitive looking cell phones are still like are there but they're also like it takes place at a you know call center where it's about like you know selling people on scams and it's like wait what that would have been in the early part of the 2000s when that was still like a viable thing, right? But it seems like a very modern movie that's happening, you know? But it's like purposely trying to play with you with that. With this, it's like doing that in terms of like putting you in the narrative, like the the feel of what the pastiche is in the sense of like, oh yeah, at this point, we're going to use like the authentic music from the from the real thing. But because like in this scene, well, I imagine this happening and we don't really have music that rep represents that. So this is the part where I'm going to fill in the blanks by emulating the music. You know what I mean? Like, I love that cool sort of like, so you don't know which one is actually new and old and you kind of have to check, you know, like. No, um, it's fun. It, I, I like how out of, out of time it is. And like I said, you know, the, yeah. she, the bride is going around murdering people and we're not seeing like an international manhunt trying to, track down Vivica <laughs> Fox's murderer like right. it's just they live according to samurai rules well I guess technically by that point she had only killed one person and still that's she, she, she still killed somebody yeah, in front of a yeah. child like in real yeah. life that something would have would have happened by now yeah, there would have been an APP out for the pussy wagon car <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah it wouldn't have been hard to hide with a oh car yeah and like Buck that. like yeah I don't know if she killed Buck but she definitely fucked him up I uh, mean and he Buck deserved it for sure oh, but, oh yeah that's right that's but right, legally yeah. speaking I mean he absolutely deserved it but legally speaking well like I was a piece of shit anyway well, and three guys actually because it was the other guy in the uh she gets the other guy first and then the guy walks in and sees it and goes like what the hell and then she happens to be waiting as the door opens to cut the dude's leg in fact i thought that was kind of interesting how there, it's a bit of a similar motif of what uh uh the bride does to survive as to what uh oren ishii does to survive 
You know, yeah. like she has to hide under here and then like move real swift and then hide behind here and like take out someone's legs in order to get them. Like, I just yeah. thought that was an interesting sort of like, you know, you know, the we're not so different. You and I kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, uh, it kind of gives you a bit of a, a background of like Oren Ishii and saying like, you know, how could this woman who's like the head of this uh, Japanese organization, but is half you know, Chinese and like technically half American, you know, how, how, how does she get respect by the crime bosses of the council? And, and they were like, well, uh, one night, uh, when she, the first night she assumed control, uh, one boss, boss Tanaka had something to say. And then, you know, he was like getting all indignant, basically being kind of bigoted, but like from that sense of like traditionalism, right. Where it's just like, no, this was all, you know, pure uh, Japanese. And why are we letting this like half breed in, you know? And she like just jumps up with precision, and all you see is like the quick tip, 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 and then just like all of a sudden, before you even know what she's before him, she just lops off the head, and like it just like pops all across the table, and everyone's just like reacting into that realistic way of just like ah, yeah. <laughs> and I just love the moment where. It, the most fucking the crowning moment of awesome where she's just like you know because i'm going to be fucking real about this i'm going to speak in english which i don't know how that would be helpful for the people that are there since they all speak japanese it, it, again it feels just like a movie moment of just like you know i'm just gonna speak in english just for the acting uh you know moment of it but it's so badass that i don't care anyway <laughs> yeah she's just like I, up the head. It's like if anyone's got anything to say now's the fucking time yeah i just i loved also that like she started that whole thing with the, her tone because i think it would be very easy for her I, I think it would have been very easy for that moment to be, okay, I'm going to say this in English so you all understand. And then just immediately like, fuck you all, you know, Rail like to immediately them, yeah. jump into that. But the fact that she was, you know, that she had this Starting whole off little, courteous, like a businesswoman. Right. Yeah. I think like that had so much more of an impact because it was like, it throws you off like, balance. I'm it's trying like, to do it, this well, in it, business. Like, yeah. And it throws you off balance. It's like, wait, what is she doing? What's she, I thought she was going to yell. What's she doing? What's she doing? And, yeah, it, and yeah. it's scarier because she's not it's a great acting it until moment. the very end. Yeah. No, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a great, it's good writing and it's really good acting also. Yeah. And then you see, uh, you know, you see, uh, it cuts to the moment of uh, the bride jetting past, jetting her motorcycle past the girl. I think it's Sophie who's on the phone while the shooting happened. And this just kind of feels like a general, like, you know, early 2000s, people on their cell phones, am I right? Because <laughs> it's yeah. like, there just seemed to be this implicit bias of just, like, hating this person mindlessly hammering on her cell phone, you know? Like, where yeah. it, was just, it was just like you were expected to be like, look at this, am I right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's it. Really, is one of those things that the these sort of little cultural moments come and go of like fuck people who talk on cell phones. Such <laughs> well, they think they're so important. I mean, yeah. I mean, it just makes me think of like if you dig back far enough, you see stuff from the like nineteenth century of these horrible people riding bicycles around and they're so inconsiderate <laughs> with their bicycles. And yeah, I mean, right. you, you 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 see stuff like that just throughout history, and it's always funny being reminded yeah. of the more recent. So you see Oren Ishii and her clan walk down the hall to the most epic music ever. And, oh my god, um, oh yeah, that's what I wrote down. I was like, this is so iconic. I kind of had them over like, wait, was this the first movie that used this music? Because it kind of feels like it. Like, was it, like maybe it was from, like, I don't know, the original 70s uh, movie that it's from. But, like, you know, for, for how, like, in the 2000s, it was like, 
like I remember action movies, other another action movie using this music. Like I could swear the bam bam bam. Like Charlie's Angels, something using shit. Although that's weird because I think Charlie's Angels was before this. But you get what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, uh, then we kind of get the scene of the five, six, seven, eights playing barefoot. Thanks, Quentin. Uh, but yeah, they kick ass. They play, I think it's like three songs in a row. Yeah, where it's just kind of like, oh shit, okay, I guess we're just fucking jamming. And um, meanwhile, while it's happening, uh, uh, the bride is sneaking around. And it's one of those things where, like, uh, again, it's the thing where it's like, it feels like they're feeling the obligation of the character sneaking around, you know, the the, the boss's hideout, right? Um, mm-hmm. Because it's like the thing of like, wait, what is she trying to accomplish by going where she's going? Because it's not like she's trying to sneak into her room and kill her right there. Like, no, she ends up actually just trying to find Sophie. Yeah, I think she's trying to find her, and then she takes her to the front of the club, and then she calls out Oranishi. But before that happens, before she's able to get to her, like, as she's just traveling around, I think Oranishi, like, she just has a moment where she's, like, you know, relaxing and celebrating with her friends, you know, they're all, like, being assholes and doing whatever. Then she hears, like, a noise, and she just, like, takes, like, uh, one of her, like, knives and just, like, throws one one of the daggers, like, behind her, and just, like, it just misses, like, the bride by, like, you know, a couple of inches. And, like, you know, she, you know, looks at her right-hand girl, uh, Gogo, the, the fucking cool-ass chick, the uh, the 14-year-old chick with the fucking um, morning star with modifications. Holy mm-hmm. shit. That, oh, that was the was biggest scary. fucking battle of the that whole. That was, so was so fucking scary. scary. Like, she was, genuinely, like, if somebody comes up yes. with that shit, I would just be dying. It, it was, I would just drop dead. <laughs> just yeah, I remember watching this movie as a kid and being like, she seems like the big boss of the battle you know, of the movie, you know? Because yeah. it's so fucking intimidating and she has to do so much to like get past her. But again, you know, it, it's that thing where like as a kid, I'm not appreciating what they're doing in terms of like this person being beat up by like, yeah, one of the strongest forces that could get her and then she's mm-hmm. still having one more battle. You know, like that's kind of the, the yeah. point of the Oh, the, I want to say right? because um, so this was something that uh, my wife had mentioned to me. Where, oh, So there was a samurai who used uh, a ball and chain like that uh, in one hundreds of, of duels. Uh, it's called a Kasurigama and Miyamoto Mushashi versus Baiken, Baiken, Baiken. Hold on. Legend has it that by that bacon, I keep saying bacon, but I think it's bacon. Anyway, bacon B- or bike B A I K E N. So bacon or bike. Yeah, I think it's bacon. Yeah. Bacon. Yeah. Okay. So that sounds like I'm saying bacon with a weird fake cognitive accent. Anyway. Uh, bacon. So all right, legend has it that uh Baiken was a skilled practitioner of the Kusurigama and um, and he was considered like a cheater, you know, that was like dishonorable because he was, you know, like you, somebody's trying to sword fight you and you're coming at them with that thing. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, anyway, that, that was what that, that was honestly the really cool tension of that scene where you're like, okay, she's been fighting people with swords and shit all up to this time. But like, how the fuck do you fight someone with that? Yeah. Yeah. Like- <laughs> and she does it and she, she's yeah. Oh, and the other thing was, so again, you know, I, I'm really like big thanks to my wife on this episode because she's uh you know she's been in martial arts since she was a kid and stuff and so she was able to appreciate a lot of the things that might have you know that I might not have noticed to that degree and she was saying you know even in that first scene with the fight with Vivica Fox both of them are using the real objects in the room you know it's not just oh we choreographed this fight in an empty warehouse and now we're going to stick them in this house but they're you know they're using the objects they're using the table leg and the you know and this and that right. and it feels very real for that reason it feels a lot more grounded because it's it's using the environment and 
you know, even though the Especially setting with the go 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 fight scene with how they someone like the way the whole fight scene ends is with her uh, 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 the bride just happening to see a broken uh, chair leg with the nail sticking out and just like stabs it right into her foot in the most visceral looking right part. yeah yeah because like your fucking toes like you can feel that happen as it happens and like she lets out the like caterwauling scream and then, also like, just how. How upsetting are the crazy 88s? How do you mean? They're just so upsetting. <laughs> what do you mean they're upsetting? What? They're, they're, they're fucking upsetting. What do you mean? What do you mean? The, the crazy <laughs> 88s are fucking upsetting. They're disturbing. I, like, do you mean, like, just their fucking manners and how, like, dickheads they were in the opening scene to the staff? They're just, I just, just find like... them disturbing. They just, like, they seem like the kind of people who would bite you. Yeah, I mean, yes, they definitely come off like that. <laughs> but I thought you just mean like the way that they were looking as they were like wallowing in pain after getting arms and limbs sliced off. Yeah, no, <laughs> I no, I just mean looking. as people, as people, they're oh, yeah. disturbing. Like the shit they're wearing, yeah. But yeah, and so like, you know, Gogo looks out and looks around to see like, you know, look around to see who, who might be there. Uh, but yeah, then you cut up and see like the bride hanging from the upholstery above. But again, it's one of those things where I'm just like, wait, where is, I mean, I guess uh, Sophie was somewhere in there uh, within the upper ranks and she needed to get her down in order to mm -hmm. chop off her arm to like make a scene for all of the people. Who yeah, were we hadn't club. really like talked about who Sophie is. She's the. Wait, who, the, who is she? Because it seems like she's, she's just the public relations. I, I don't know, like assistant, like. Well, she's like her right hand woman, although she clearly has a connection to Bill, which we find out at the end. But Sophie yeah. is the the half French, half Japanese something like or other, and she's like... yeah, she she's her she's her right hand woman. Yeah, that's that's who Sophie is, and she and she loses an arm. Yeah, literally. yeah. She... And I thought she, I was exp see again, like I'd forgotten a lot because I hadn't seen the movie in a while, and I was like, oh, she's dead. And then she's not. <laughs> With as much blood as she freaking loses. Like, yeah. yeah, you think all these But, you know, we're emulating these samurai films, so I guess, like, everyone just has, like, a fucking extra body's worth of blood within them. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, she chops off her arm, uh, gets all the normies to freak out and, like, leave. And so, like, yeah, it's just the, uh, the, uh, the crew there left. And they, like, she takes them on in this really awesome fight scene. And then it, like, it leads up to Oren Ishii, I mean, uh, excuse me, then it leads up to uh, Gogo, like we said, the intense fucking fight scene where, like, the fucking fighting is happening and, um, like, it gets to that point where, like, she's able to maneuver it so she wraps the, uh, the, uh, chain around the bride's neck and, like, the thing, the, the ball and chain hits up against some wood so it stabs inside and so it's just, like, got her hung around it and then, she's, like, you know, Gogo pulls even more she gets even closer to him and it's just like, uh, and you see, like, you know, her choking and shit. But then, yeah, like we said earlier, she happens to just pick up that, like, broken chair, like, stab her in the foot. And, like I said, the goriest moment. And it doesn't involve, like, a, a samurai sword or, or a gun. And, like, and then, like, hits her in the head next. And you see her, like, bleeding out of her eyes in a way that's so fucking intense. But, yeah, it was, like, one of those things where you're like, whoa, you're the cool fucking big boss that, like, 
the people are actually going to be talking about after they leave the movie. You know what I mean? Uh, where it's like, oh, Renisha, I mean, she's the one who owns everything. So, of course, like, she's the, she's the badass. But, like, no, the one who was, like, actually gave, like, your girl a run for her money when she still actually had a lot more energy left in her was fucking Gogo. You know, she's actually the one who really weakened her. And then after that, so, yeah, and I didn't, I, I had forgotten this at first. Like, there's an epic fight scene, and then it's Gogo, and then you hear a bunch of, like, Harleys rolling up. And she's like, oh, you got you you've got the rest of the like the 88 keys that you're sending after me right now. And so like, um, yeah, yeah, that's what I wrote down. Or an Ishii uh, calls up the squad. <laughs> yeah. And th there's that moment where she goes like, yeah, and I love I love these two lines of dialogue, but I hate the dialogue that comes right after it <laughs> where she goes like, you didn't think it would be that easy, did you? And it was just immediately like, you know, for a second there. I, yeah. I love that i love yeah. that throwing it in your face where it's just like you know she's being smoked by being like huh, you're never gonna get to me because i'm just gonna keep throwing these guys at you and it's just like oh no that that was that was you being hard on me oh no 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 keep them coming you know like <laughs> yeah but then the next line where she goes like silly rabbit and then they just cut back and forth between each other saying the chicks are for kids and i was like wait what the fuck is that supposed to mean other than the fact of it being a reference because i was like i didn't like the dialogue for most of his movies are like sharp so if there is a reference in there it feels like oh i'm getting why they're doing that in the moment but for that moment i was just like wait why is that happening because yeah. like because because you would think the assumption would be like orinishi is pulling a trick on uma thurman's character by being like oh but i actually had more guys but it's Orinishi saying, silly rabbit, she initiates the line. So, like, it would be more appropriate for, like, Uma Thurman to be like, oh, silly rabbit, jinx of a like, pulling a trick on me, you shouldn't have done that. You know what I mean? Like, I just kind of didn't get what was, it just felt like a reference for reference's sake, just to be like, ah, isn't that kind of silly? But anyway. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the whole sequence in the club, it's, it's a piece. It's a set piece. It goes on yeah. for a long time. It's, it's about half the movie. Yeah, I mean it, it's really long. It's fun. the The setting. I feel like we haven't like spent a whole lot of time talking about like the setting of this club is just oh the way it looks. Yeah, with beautiful. the glass, uh, the glass uh, thing with the sand underneath it. So yeah, can, it's, it has those shots like, where it's showing the action underneath it. Yeah, it's like just this gorgeous like light industrial disco. You've got the the one two or what are the the two three four five sixes the, the five the, six seven eights yeah five six seven eight. I keep forgetting their names. So, <laughs> the the number is the two, number threes. ladies. Uh, <laughs> You know, but yeah, the the eight, nine, ten, elevens are great, and they <laughs> <laughs> no, they're wonderful, and they look really cute. They've got these kind of like beehive, like like nineteen, like early nineteen sixties girl group thing going on with the yeah. beehive haircuts, and um, and it's it's just really fun. It's just really fun, yeah. and you can kind of just. I you can like follow the be... action, and it feels fresh as it's happening. Mm -hmm. As you're watching it, it never feels like, oh, I already saw this. Like, in fact, there's one scene where, like, she just gets to fucking break dancing while getting the two swords sliced motherfuckers up. And it's just like, it just feels like there's a second wind that comes into the movie where you're just like, yo, what the fuck? Like, you're always trying to catch, like, how the fuck is she getting the next, like, fucking edge in on people? And how's she getting the next one? And, like, stabbing that one dude and, like, using him to, like, ward off the dudes and running up the, the banisters so that she could, like, you know, uh, get some time to breathe away from the dudes. And then the, you know, Charlie Brown motherfucker coming after her anyway or something like that. And, like, you know, so, like, her having to, like, catch up with these guys trying to get her. It's one of those things where it's, like, it's one, like, I, I'm trying to think of, like, 
when since this movie has there been a thing of like one guy facing a million guys and you actually believe that they kind of can get through it like i feel like not only is that kind of just like worn out as a trope because you know just in general that's the thing that happens but it's just like how many movies really do make you feel the intensity of the action feel the way in that way that like oh oh uh the daredevil show i think that did a really good job of that if, mm-hmm. if anyone has seen the first season of that where the, the hallway fight scene it's infamous now where it's just like he's fighting these dudes but like as he's fighting them of course you know sometimes they get back up and they still want to kick his ass so it's like you you feel the exhaustion of him going like fuck i'm not done yet i still have to hit this guy and hit that guy you know what i mean so like you know, not since that scene, I, I'm remembering like a movie where, uh, you know, you have the scene where like someone facing all of these guys, but you actually can believe that they're doing it because you're seeing all the dynamic ways that they're uh, uh, keeping the bad guys on their toes with how they're mm-hmm. moving so quick and nimble. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. And just in general, like, you know, I remember someone talking about like when you show like war in movies and it's about like, you know, some sort of um, Lord of the Rings type of shit where you're trying to show like the flow of battle, the bad guy, the good guys moving here and getting a win by going here and, and how important it is to showcase this win here. You know, like I feel like this movie does that good job of like not just pointless action, but like, you know, pointful action. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, er, er, like I said, you feel the flow of battle and I think it's just like, it takes a mastery to like really be able to do that in a way that's not just, you know, like I said, Michael Bay or, oh my God, God forbid, the new fucking Matrix uh, Resurrections movie where it's just like anytime we need to show a punch or impact, it's just like, oh, the impact's about to happen. Oh, and then it cuts over here to where the impact has already happened. And so, you know, you know, that cheap thing that just flattens all action in cinema these days, you know, where it's just like, oh, we need to show a fight scene happening, but we we didn't actually take the time to really, like, get the choreography together, so we're just going to show him, like, showing the kick about to happen and then cutting right to after the impact happened, you know? Like, I'm so sick of that being in movies, you know what I mean? And then just covering everything up with fucking CGI and shit. Like, yeah. I love this movie being, like, showing you, like, what made those kung fu and and samurai movies, especially in this instance, so special, right? Like, showing a person having the determination of will to get through all of these guys, you know? Like, mm-hmm. well, I randomly was going to say, did, did you notice the Wilhelm scream in this movie? I think it was used actually a couple of times. No, I, it's one of those things, like, I know about it. I know what the Wilhelm scream is, the, but yeah! I just don't, I don't notice it, you know? Like, I, See, I, it's I not something noticed- I think about that. See, I never noticed it before until someone explicitly showed me what it sounded like. Because for the longest time, I always remember just hearing, like, Wilhelm scream. And I was just like, I guess I've heard screams in movies that kind of sounded generic. So I just thought it was a general, like, oh, like, oh, no. Like, if someone, like, particularly falls off a cliff. But no, it is a very specific yell. It's an exasperated yell. Like, where it sounds like someone who's, like... (laughs) Like, if you just showed it, like, just, like, stubbing your toe or something like that, it would sound ridiculous to hear, like, a, yeah! But, like, it's with that specifically, like, there's so much action happening, there's so many people being flown and, like, kicked off of this, that, like, when it's mixed in with what's happening, it actually sounds like it's part of the moment. Like, you're like, you know? Like, it's like a weird, like, crest of the scene sort of, uh... Uh, uh, like sound cue, you know. But yeah, I I, th- I just thought that was really cool noticing that. And then of course, there's a random moment where someone just turns the lights off, but it doesn't really turn it off. It just turns everything blue. But like that's the point where it seems like like it seems like you would get tired of the action, but it's that one thing that just kicks it into like another gear again, where you're just invested in seeing like the silhouettes moving and how they interact. You know what I'm saying? It's, mm-hmm. It really is like there was like as a director, he knows what to do to keep you 
invested in how the action unfolds, you know? And then we finally get to uh, the final scene where, like I said, like, it's short, but it feels earned on the emotional weight of, like, really seeing what's happening. Like, you know, as a kid, I, I didn't really, like, take in how unfair Oren Ishii is being and also, like, some braggy shit. Like, she's like, oh, you know, like, you're, you're not actually going to be able to get to me all the way up here. You know, and not only, like, have you just fought all these guys, but you can see all of these blood, like, you know, she didn't just get through these guys flawlessly, right? Like, she took a massive amount of cuts and damage. So, like, her fighting Oren Ishii, as she looks, like, really clean and, like, you know, well-prepared, like, it's not a fair fight. So it's, like, the fact that she's doing so well is, like, as an as an adult now who, like, understands, like, you know, the price of if you get banged up in battle and then, like, having to fight through that. You know, like, what that really means as, like, a person, like, in combat with someone who's looking fucking well-rested, you know what I'm saying? They haven't had to, you know, <laughs> like, she's yeah. just been watching her this whole time. Like, it's not fucking fair the way she comes at it's, her. It's not. It's weird. It's like, you know, with Oranishi, it's like, she's she's a boss. Like, uh, she's very literally a boss. Yeah, she's and just, so, like, watching them her being worn down, and it was just like, you're going to be worn right. down to a nub. So you know yeah. it's not fair, and it's kind of shitty, and it should make you hate her, but at the same time, at least for me, it doesn't. It's more just like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> like, <laughs> That's if what she you gotta didn't do. use her minions, that would just be kind of dumb. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, you, you don't want to be the dumbass villain who's just like, no, stand aside. I will take it. Like, bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What do I pay you guys for? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Oh, and I love the intenseness of the music during that final scene. Because what's interesting is that it's like, it's not really, there's not, uh, like, there's action that definitely happens, but there's a lot more posing than not, like, than you would expect from, like, from how manic the music is, where you're hearing, like, like, it's all this stuff happening. But, like, as you're looking, it's really, like, them pose, like, you see a bit of fighting, but then you see them, like, posing and, like, sizing each other up. And, you, like, especially that moment when Oranishi, like, throws down her, um, her thing that she sheaths the sword with to be like, no, I'm just gonna fight you with my sword now. No, we're gonna go one-on-one. All right. Like, I'm respecting you enough as a, you know, as an opponent to fight you head on. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, I love that shot where you see her, though, like, with the sword and with the sheath for the sword. And, like, you see it's sort of like, come at me. <laughs> like, I, that is one of my favorite just, like, shots looking at, you know? But, yeah, like, in, earlier in the scene, you know, she kind of deserved for being like, yo, you're just a white girl playing with uh, Japanese swords, you know? And it's like, and again, it kind of rubs it in deeper knowing that it's just like, okay, but you know she just killed all these other dudes just to get to you, bro. Like, you're just being mm-hmm. a dick. <laughs> so it's like, it's one of those things that, yeah, like you said, it is like commenting on the like, huh, how could this white person ever possibly be as good with a sword? But then it's like, narratively, it actually is kind of paying it off with it through being like, she's actually being a dick because she really has been proving herself this whole fucking time, you know? And that was the thing, like, while she was on her back foot, I think, because you actually see her, like, stumbling a bit as she's, like, preparing to take on Oranishi as the fight continues. But then it's like, so it's like, while she's on her back foot, you see a moment where she's able to cut across Oranishi's leg, which cuts the music, and has that moment where she's like, oh, shit. Like, that's the thing that makes her go like, whoa, you, you got me. You you actually got me. And then she pauses and she goes like, for ridiculing you earlier, I, I apologize. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and that's sort of like, oh shit, like respect, you know what I mean? And he's like, so? 
And uh, like the bride, like Ikuyo, like you ready? <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, and I love that, like, yeah, like you see, like the really quick exchange that they do, really quick, and then like you know, you just see the final slice as you see the fake ass wig, and she literally splits her wig and it lands in the snow. But I do like yeah. how they do the the cut really intensely. Like you don't see it's like after all the fighting that you happen and that happens in the movie, you don't see that impact because it's like a samurai movie where it's just like oh, cutting really quick, and so you just see like you know you see the wig and then you see the, like the slice of blood uh, cut into the snow. You know what I mean? And so it's like that epic look, and then. And then it cuts to you know her like slowly pulling out to show the uh, the horror the horror core of the dead I mean the brain sticking out you know in the cold it's like you really are the greatest last white samurai mm-hmm. <laughs> and she goes down you know but uh you know like I said narratively it's an urge scene in, in the moment but that's kind of what they do in samurai movies anyway right like you know when the vanquished villain is goes like wow. Your technique really is the greatest, you know? Like, I truly got to sample, you know, the Hattori Hanzo sword, you know? There's always, like, that respect of just, like, oh, wow, I was honored by, like, you know, getting the best of someone in this battle, you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. getting the true intensity of their power. So then after that uh, unfolds, she, uh, the the bride, uh, rolls out of there, rolls the cell phone chick down a hill towards the hospital... (laughs) Mm-hmm. And uh, you see the um, intensity of the last moment as, like, she is telling her, like, they do a little, like, a- after she rolls her down, you know, Bill, like, comes up to her and is, like, yeah, it's this really dark, dark scene is going, like, tell me what happened. And then it's, like, cutting back to, you know, uh, the bride saying, like, I want you to tell him everything that you are going to tell me. And you're going to tell me everything. Because for every time i feel like you're not telling me something i'm cutting off something and then trust me it's going to be something you will miss <laughs> mm-hmm. you know but then uh you know so you kind of have her being like really angry like giving her a list of demands being like i want him to know that uh i want him to know that i know uh what he knows now and i want you to tell me everything that you know and you know it's like all that sort of thing and it's like but then i especially want you to know that i am coming for him and i'm not gonna fucking stop and then uh but then it cuts back to you know, Bill, like, touching the Sophie chick and being, like, you know, him being, like, uh, it's like, so you told her everything, huh? So does she know that her child is still alive? And the Sophie chick kind of looks a little confused and looks up at him. So it's like, you know, clearly she didn't know that. And so it's like the thing of, like, oh, shit, wait a minute. What, what is this going to mean for, for the next film? Is this going to color, you know, her, her attempt for revenge in a different mm-hmm. way? Ho, ho, stay tuned, dear audience. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, yeah. uh, you know, what could this mean for her revenge plot? How would it color her journey? <laughs> yeah. uh, find out next week. Uh, well, we got it next week on, so on the when, when did podcast. Volume two come out. Like, how far apart did they come out it, from each it other? It was April of two thousand four, so not even really six months later. Like, it's wow. kind of insane. Yeah, um, it was. It's an interesting way to do it. Yeah, like in fact, the Matrix uh, movies. Uh, tr- I think they tried to come out right back to back, but I think the studios were, were just like, "Hey, you can't do it like immediately back to back because it's like." You know, we can't have our movie interrupting its own, like, box office. You know what I mean? And so, like, I think they spaced it out six months as well. I think they spaced theirs out, like, early in the year, like, April of that year. And then have it, like, came out, like, later on in the year of 2003. But, yeah, Kill Bill was late 2003. And then the second one was in April of 2004. 
So it was mm-hmm. like six months apart. And it was just like, holy shit, you're already getting to know what happens because they already filmed it. And it's like that. It, it, it's this thing that like I can see the what he's doing and how like the people of today doing franchises are trying to emulate it. But it's like you guys so don't have the heart that it kind of bleeds through. Right. Like I said, like we mentioned the points earlier about like, oh, just showing you. Uh, uh, trinkets and bleeps and bloops from the earlier version of whatever franchise. But it's like, but that doesn't work when it's just like a franchise that everyone knows about versus, like, it doesn't matter as much with that versus like someone actually finding like bits of countercultural, you know, pop memorabilia and bringing that to you in a way that hasn't been brought in a mainstream mm-hmm. film before. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's a different, yeah. like, in the same way, like, the, the 90s Matrix movie uh, did that as well, right? Like, they took a lot of things from, like, philosophy and anime and, you know, the internet that was going on at the time and fused that in, but in a way that made something that was new, right? You can't say that the Matrix is just an anime that came out at this point, right? Like, you have to say that, like, well, it is this blending with the, these other arts or styles. But whereas, like, The Matrix was specifically looking forward, this movie was more about, like, reveling in the, the kitsch and memorabilia of of these, like, movies that he really valued, you know what I'm saying? But, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this movie. Like, I enjoyed it just as much as I... Uh, Enjoyed it back in the day. I remember not liking the second movie as much, but I I remember immediately being like, I mean, but I know that's because it's a longer movie with not as much action immediately. So of course, like I'm not, and it's one of those things where I remember people saying like, this is the perfect, like Kill Bill's volume one and two are the perfect uh, Quentin Tarantino movie because it does allow him to just get out his ultra violence at the beginning. And then it allows him to get out his like super pensive shit on the second half of things. Like it allows both to exist. And so, so I remember someone bringing up the point is like, man, maybe this should just be how he makes movies. Cause it seems to balance things out. But I guess we'll find out when we uh, watch it next, next time now, won't we? <laughs> mm-hmm. um well how did you feel overall about the movie i don't know man i'm like it's it's weird i feel like i'm not given a whole lot today because oh, i just no love. it's so much e- well it's so much easier if i'm like either cavelling or kvetching you know it's so much easier if i like hate something or if mm-hmm. i'm just like i was super in love with it the way i was with like sorry to bother you in the green knight uh. but with this one i'm just like yeah cool you know and i think it's like you just, recognize the ability but you're not like necessarily I'm just, a fanboy i'm not of like the stuff super so it hit you I, i'm not a nerd about samurai films and i feel <laughs> like to really be into this you got to be a little bit of a samurai nerd i get you know? that for sure yeah yeah like yeah. especially to get like something like oh the song that plays at the end where you just hear like a japanese singer is just like oh that's specifically from this movie like yeah like it doesn't really matter if you don't know <laughs> like yeah. it's, it's cool in the moment of hearing it like oh this really does sound like we're at the end of an a samurai movie but it's just like but i don't really know about that movie so it doesn't really like it doesn't matter as much in the same way but like i think you can still enjoy it like on the merits of it being like a solid ass action movie and hey you know let it inspire you to um you know check out some more of these like you know samurai films if it, if it piques your interest i i do think it's actually pretty cool that um i remember after this became such a big hit you know there would be a thing where like oh, Quentin Tarantino would present uh, a bunch of movies and it would be like some movie that like Jet Li was starring in that was never going to get any play in America because, oh, well, where's the white action star? But because like Quentin Tarantino presented it, then it's like, okay, well, now I guess we'll let this, you know, movie have a chance, even though it's like fucking Jet Li. Do you remember that movie? I think it was the movie Hero. Where it was like it was a really cool movie where I would not have seen it if it had not have been for well Quentin Tar- Tarantino you know puts his name in front of this movie so that wide audiences will watch it. Jet Li's the hero, you know, mm-hmm. and 
Yeah, and so it's like, I think as an artist, that's what it really matters and counts as, right? When you go like, hey, how am I really giving back after like, sure, sure, like taking from these genres because I love them and like, I got my influence from them. But like, you know, showing how to be like, okay, now you guys should go check out what the modern people are, you know, the modern version of this are doing. You know what I'm saying? And that I think that's what like helped lead to that like big resurgence of like the wuxia films in the early 2000s with like crouching tiger hidden dragon and stuff like that where it was like someone who's like i enjoy this and i am a white guy saying that it's okay for you know audiences over here to check this shit out too you know mm -hmm. yeah i mean it's i i think with a lot of tarantino's films i i think part of what is really a strength of them is is making you know he's he's making them with so much love for his influences and mm. so much enthusiasm about his influences and it makes even not being you know maybe especially drawn to some of these genres myself it still makes me want to check them out so uh, that's the the review a new podcast for this week thank you so much for joining us uh join us next time we're gonna be reviewing i think we're gonna be taking on another request but i haven't looked at what it was so i guess we'll see when it is then but uh, surprise it's a surprise yeah. <laughs> don't ever do that oh to Lord. us Please don't do that to don't, us don't put that bad karma out there <laughs> don't even no, I'm editors <laughs> censor that movie name out. <laughs> but yeah until next time uh, thank you so much for joining us uh this has been the review a new podcast i'm dj i'm evan and your days will be short like the winter solstice and any chance to receive a slight bit of mercy from her was hopeless or an Ishii, half Chinese, half Japanese, half American. Ma, yeah, what a species.